0: Hey, if you think you might be lost because you got lots of your thoughts, I'll be informed. Or if you're feeling like a fool, cause you've been used just like a tool since you were born. Hey, if you're trying to get through life, then friend, I've got some great advice for not growing horns. They say that ignorance is bliss, but if you knew, then you'd be pissed, so get informed. Recorder, I hardly know her. Welcome back to The leftists. <laughs> Welcome back to The leftists. Uh, I am a host, Colin Orton, he, him, his, and with me okay. is...
1: Another host, Al Gropey, currently experiencing a bit of a pronoun deficit, so just call me whatever you like. I'll take whatever you can throw at me. And today, oh boy, today, I am screeching and standing atop my chair because I'm so excited. <laughs> Colin, what are we reading today?
0: We're reading "Women, Race, and Class" by Angela Davis.
1: Yes, and
0: it is. It fucking owns. This is a. This is a book that I have needed to read for a long time, uh, and have not. And so I am now that we're two chapters in. Uh, mm-hmm. holy shit, what an awesome text. Like,
1: mm-hmm.
0: just that's hyped. about it. Yeah, yeah just <laughs> hype.
1: I feel that, I feel that. I'm super freaking pumped. We were supposed to read this a couple weeks ago, and then there were some complications. So we decided this was going to be our in-betweeny text where uh, whenever we have to wait in between a week for a guest or for scheduling difficulties, then we can pick up a couple more chapters of this. And so today we're reading chapters one and two, the legacy of slavery standards for a new womanhood and the anti-slavery movement and the birth of women's rights Two great chapters to just dip our toe into this book. I'm super stoked.
0: (laughs) It's yeah, it's awesome. Um, This episode's going to need a trigger warning or two.
1: Oh, absolutely. I will. This book needs a trigger warning. Absolutely essential reading. But there was one description of a sexual assault that had me reeling and I had to put it down when I checked my notes.
0: We do. We do have some news. This week's news episode is uh, is pretty short. And this one isn't isn't one article. It's Al, I'm sure you have existed uh, in american news for the past few days
1: i have been around
0: so uh katanji brown jackson has been nominated
1: oh yeah to the
0: supreme court uh and like it's a pretty fucking big deal because like you know a black woman being nominated to the supreme court
1: mm-hmm.
0: would be a big deal generally but especially right now where our supreme court is like fucked uh-huh kavanaugh Not to mention Amy Coney Barrett, others, Clarence Thomas. So uh, she has just been subjected to what you would expect—the
1: most Uh, asinine barrage of stupid questions. I really just feel like this is the Republicans' revenge for the Kavanaugh trial. They're just oh, it is, yeah. But it's so stupid when you turn it the other side. I saw a clip of someone asking her what her definition of a woman was.
0: I believe that was Ted Cruz who asked that. Or was it Ted Cruz? Ted Cruz did the whole uh, anti-racist baby thing where he brandished a copy of a, like an infant's book. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, Lindsey Graham asked her what her, what her religion was. And she was forced to answer like that's not something you're allowed to ask like.
1: <laughs> it's also irrelevant to the job I am interviewing for, essentially.
0: Yeah. Uh anyway, that's a nightmare. And sort of in the background of that, uh you're familiar with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, right?
1: Not as familiar as I should be. Do you have like a elevator <laughs> pitch? <laughs> You don't have to look what up. It's just like a five-word description, I guess. Not
0: really. Uh, I know that he's hella conservative. Ah, noted. He was born in 1948. Holy
1: Looks shit. Like he was nommed by H.W. Uh, Bush.
0: Yeah, he was uh, the second black person to be on the court ever. Anyway, so his wife, Ginny, which is short for Virginia, I believe. So she was texting... Uh, White House former White House chief of staff Mark Meadows oh pretty consistently from November of 2020 to January of
1: 2021
0: oh. uh, including texts uh, that say and I quote, Biden crime family and ballot fraud co conspirators, parentheses, elected officials, bureaucrats, social media, censorship mongers, fake stream media reporters, etc., are being arrested and detained for ballot fraud right now and over coming days will be living in barges off Gitmo to face military tribunals for sedition. Uh, that was on November 5th, uh, oh. two days after the election.
1: Oh my God.
0: This is from Business Insider.
1: When the cursed text continue,
0: oh they get a uh, they get much better. The first text that she sent Mark Meadows, referenced a sense taken down YouTube video uh that was alleging that Sandy Hook was a false flag, oh Jesus, <laughs> oh God, like like into the Alex Jones shit, yeah, into already. the crisis
1: actors. A conspiracy also
0: for reference the sandy hook parents uh, or not for reference but uh, fun fact the sandy hook parents are calling for alex jones's arrest because he's failed to show up for multiple court dates like <laughs> you know. he he is just not showing up to court anyway in line with what we know about him um she texted about like the watermarked ballots thing you know mm. uh, that that conspiracy and i quote Involved in the planning of rallies on January 6th, including playing a, quote, uniting, unquote, role between different rally organizers. Oh, God, girl. So it's fascinating that, like, the wife of a sitting Supreme Court justice is also, like, texting the White House chief of staff.
1: Mm, In regards to January 6th. Yeah. Oh when I Googled Clarence Thomas's name while we were trying to form an educated opinion on him, the first article was actually, what do Ginny Thomas's texts mean for Clarence's position of the Supreme Court? And I was like, what does this mean? And then you enlightened me. Um, yeah, because it's not
0: unbiased. Uh,
1: hmm Ooh. So,
0: so, speaking of hogs, uh, Tiny Toez, no. or toese, uh, has been charged with uh, 11 counts, including rioting, second and third degree assault, unlawful use of a weapon, and first degree criminal mischief.
1: Ooh. Yeah. Me. This is
0: a, what affiliation? Uh, w- one of the highest ranking Proud Boys that Proud exists. Proud Boys.
1: I figured, yeah.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, he's being held without bail, which <laughs> is significant because he has had, you know multiple charges levied against him before and then gone out on bail and committed more crimes. Mm -hmm. So the fact that he's being held without bail is notable.
1: Yeah. Wow. It's almost as if they learned from their past treatment of this man. So
0: there's one other, uh, rather nightmarish piece of news. And this one comes from South Carolina. Uh, Oh, uh, as of March 18th, 2022, according to NPR. So, You're familiar with how expensive it is to get because we've talked about it a little bit on the podcast about how states that do the death penalty are really kind of struggling to get access to the drugs to do the lethal injection.
1: Yeah, we've talked about this
0: because of how expensive they are, Mm -hmm. uh, largely because they get imported from countries where that's illegal. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Mm -hmm. it's really uh, (laughs) South Carolina was considering a different solution than other um, states to that. Do you remember what their, what their proposed solution was? There was theirs
1: bringing back the firing squad, or was that? Correct. F- oh, God.
0: <laughs> oh. Uh, and South Carolina has concluded the preparations and is now ready to perform executions via firing squad.
1: No, they, can, they fully went through with it. Yep. Oh and God.
0: as of March 18th, they are ready to begin executing people via firing squad
1: ridiculously inhumane the death penalty is already inhumane
0: yep it took them almost a year uh to quote establish new rules and procedures to safely provide this method unquote uh including installing bullet resistant glass and a firing squad chair with restraints for the inmate
1: oh my god they're strapped to a chair yeah. Then just electrocute him at that point. What's the... What's
0: the? I would argue that firing squad is way more humane than electric chair.
1: I mean, actually, yeah, that's true. But, <laughs> like, I guess it, the whole point of this was cost efficiency, which already, fucking disgusting, and way to... Why is your first place when you're thinking about, hmm, how are we going to save costs? Let's uh, skimp a little on the way that we execute our prisoners. Fucking... Death by like bleeding out or traumatic damage to parts of your body? Like, what if they miss? What if they don't? Oh, Jesus. I can't. I can't. Mm. Too early.
0: I mean, we talked about this last time too, but you remember uh, Arizona's solution to the problem? Uh, The the not enough uh, lethal injections? They built a Zyklon B gas chamber.
1: That was it. I do remember the gas chamber talk.
0: Yeah. Fucking horrific. This country
1: uh, fucking sucks. Yeah, slowly devolving. Not even slowly, just Rapidly. devolving. Oh. I mean,
0: yeah. One of the things that, that sort of has dawned on me, the, the more I learn about specifically the Nixon administration, mm. but, but U.S. history generally, is um, how fucked we have always been Like as, as a country. We've always been like this. Yeah, and I think it's just because of you know the time period that we happened to grow up in, uh, and the the sort of apathy of the 2000s. Yeah, that
1: uh,
0: that was very. Uh, there was this like cultural apathy, and it was not you know universal. Mm-hmm. There were some incredible protest movements in the 2000s, fucking Occupy, yeah, uh, 2011. But like,
1: <laughs> it's- like. Yeah, it's common that we didn't realize. It's very common disillusionment among our age because it's really we've been taught the Great American Dream under the guise of the Great American Delusion. That's just like, oh, you live in this great country, and you don't have to care enough to become educated and find out that's not true.
0: <laughs> yeah, we. This we're not uh, one of those barbarian countries across the sea who would execute their their civilians with firing squads.
1: No, us never. No,
0: no, that's not us. Who, me? Couldn't We're, be. we're the bastion of, of freedom and civilization and such.
1: And then you go to your gas chamber and you think, are we the baddies?
0: Yeah, really. Uh, it's very grim. You know uh, what is also grim, but at least enlightening? The reason raiding... in class.
1: Oh, no. Nope. Is it another news article? <laughs> no,
0: no, no. It's, it's the women racing class. Okay. Yeah, I punched you <laughs> I... out.
1: I cut you off, and I was like, was I, did I just interrupt, like, a tragic story this man's work? <laughs> uh, But no. This was, time, no. I felt the segue on your tone of voice. But yeah, that's uh, horrid news today, but at least an excuse to get into some horrid history, and some, like, empowering history, too um in the second chapter a little bit more with Angela Davis's women race in class and now uh, we've talked about Angela Davis on the podcast before not in any great detail but obviously one of the most famous activists writers and like leftists of her time I would say just in
0: U.S. history yeah
1: oh absolutely and especially well known for her many books this being one of her biggest publications Uh, Probably, I mean, I can't say that that's an educated, like, uh, story and uh, reader of books' opinion. That's more just the opinion I've heard of popular culture. But it is clear to see, even from the first chapter, why she is so lauded and why everyone praises her reading so much. Because the writing is just so amazing. We were talking about this before we started the podcast. One of the smoothest reads on one of the most difficult topics... (laughs) That we've read now. Colin, I'm sorry. You, you opened your mouth to speak. No, I, I opened my mouth uh, to breathe. Uh, please go ahead. <laughs> Stop it. Don't do that. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, but like uh, now, one thing we should mention, obviously, is that this book has a lot to do with race. And obviously, we are both white, as we have addressed before. And this was part of our initial Worries about picking up the book was not being able to address these topics with sensitivity or with great care. So there are a lot of points that I'm just going to say, I don't have the knowledge to remark on this, but I yep. don't want to discredit the reading by leaving out points or facts that she's making. So yep. sometimes I'll just be restating things that are said in the book, just addressing the common themes, yeah. making no comment on them myself. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <And> I, <laughs> yep. <laughs> you know, just yep. drinking my beer, doing my hand kill. <laughs> But I say that largely because the first chapter is about, largely, the role of Black women in the family unit during the period of slavery. And I won't lie, my initial thought was... Why is this the introduction in a book that is about the larger relationships between sexuality, gen- well, not sexuality, but uh, gender, race, and class? And I never should have questioned it because it's obvious. It becomes obvious why she's using this as a starting point. Uh, Not only to point out that the ideas that were ascribed to black women of this time were inherently sexist and were also not true, but also to use the transition into why then it was women, white women, that became such a driving force of the abolition movement in chapter two with the anti-slavery movement and the birth of women's rights. Obviously, well, let me rephrase that. She's not setting this up to transition to white women. That would be ridiculous. Uh, This argument, this uh, first chapter has arguments of its entire own merit, but I'm just saying chronologically this transitions into that next chapter. She begins with uh, basically an array of different kinds of documentation that were attempted to be had after the slavery period about families under enslavement and how they ascribed these ideas to the family units that were not at all reflected in the way they actually behaved. A lot of people thought that because there were matriarchal relations when it came to the purchasing and trading of people, that those matriarchal relations would be reflected in the family unit. But this was not the case. Some scholars even attempted to argue that those matriarchal family units made the family structure and like the the communities of these people degenerate which this was first of all wasn't the case second of all didn't happen
0: (laughs) there's a yeah a great deal of writing about family units uh and like the impact of enslavement on family units by like dudes who never talked to anybody and <laughs> were just kind of like, ah, yes, from, you know, uh, uh, there's a lot of really, um, like, it is very grim, but the, the sheer lack of, of frame from these mm-hmm. scholars uh, that Davis quotes is very funny. Yeah. Uh, just dudes pulling shit out of their ass, just really.
1: It's like, ah, really I saw a up. person once working. I assume this is how they are their entire life. Yeah, it... The gall to assume that from your perception of what they are in public, of what people act, behave as in public, is how they behave in the home.
0: Fucking dumb. <laughs> but yeah, um, that's quite a lot of Chapter 1. Is th- There's an idea that gets reinforced in Chapter 1 that is is brought up And this idea is the sort of changing relationship of women and labor as uh, under industrialization in the first half of the 19th century, um, where basically factory jobs start to become a thing and replaceable parts and mass production starts happening. And you start seeing like essentially uh, what Davis talks about is women losing productive work in the home women previously would have been making clothes candles
1: oh i have a great quote for that
0: go for it please please Mm
1: -hmm. well i just wanted to transition briefly i know we are going to mainly talk about chapter two because chapter one is again very heavily entrenched in this discussion of family units during slavery um but just really quickly a transition from the ideas in one to what you're bringing up in chapter two is the, how we said that the ideas that scholars described on the family units were not what happened, what is actually true, largely because of their relationships to labor and that women were doing all the same work as men, is that there was more egalitarian relationships in the home, at least socially. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. I could see we're trying to make that connection. and. You it did. didn't
0: work very clearly. Uh, but You
1: did, but you just drew into something in chapter two, which is also related because as Colin was saying, and here's the quote, <laughs> I'm sorry, I'm rambling. No, so no, no, no,
0: go for it, go for it.
1: Um, he was pointing out that pre-industrialization, a lot of women would have to make most of the materials their family used. And there's this block quote um, that is in chapter two when they start talking about how, why women in particular were so strongly in the cause of abolition. Quote, Women's place had indeed been in the home, but not simply because they bore and reared children or ministered to their husbands' needs. They had been productive workers within the home economy and their labor had been no less respected than their men's. When manufacturing moved out of the home and into the factory, the ideology of womanhood began to raise the wife and mother as ideals. As workers, women had at least enjoyed economic equality, but as wives, they were destined to become appendages to their men, servants to their husbands. As mothers, they would be defined as passive vehicles for the replenishment of human life.
0: The idea of femininity as being someone who is relegated to the home and doesn't do anything.
1: Mm -hmm. And as being like both commodified and idealized under an industrialization mindset. She talks, uh, in this chapter, she addresses a lot of the abolition efforts of women. And in particular, at one point, she mentions Prudus Crandall, she mentions Lucretia Mott, and she mentions the Grimke sisters. And the Grimke sisters were public speakers that there were priests speaking against them saying instead of behaving like a dependent woman that draws her strength from being frail and being private, you are trying to stand like a strong ash, but a vine cannot stand on its own or it will wither and die. (laughs) Basically saying by speaking in public and being unladylike, they were rejecting their nature as human beings and oh, the gravest sin.
0: Not just rejecting their, their nature, quote unquote, but opposing God's will.
1: Mm-hmm. which is I think
0: uh, something that Davis touches on there that I'm sure will come up again is organized religion as a reactionary force. This idea mm-hmm. of quickly use cause God said so as a way of upholding the status quo. Things are the way they are because God wants them to be that way. And if he wanted to be, uh, if he wanted things to be different, they already would be.
1: Mm-hmm. She uh, Davis speaks a lot on I just one of the main themes in this chapter is women realizing white women, realizing that the fight for their rights is essential and the fight for the rights of black people are essential to each other. And she says it's the dialectical relationship between these two causes. Uh, abolitionists who were also feminists at this time didn't have that issue we see sometimes today of which cause is more important than the other because they understood they would never be able to fight for the rights of Black people fully until they were respected as women. This is something they realized over the course of it because the more these women would organize and go out to perform abolitionist causes, the more they would be noticed that they weren't even being listened to because they weren't considered valid.
0: Yeah, the intersectionality, uh, the mm-hmm. racial and gender depressions are not in, they're, they're not separate. They're part of the same mechanism.
1: Mm-hmm. I have another quote from uh, a text written by Angelina Grimke in 1837. Her appeal to the women of the nominally free states Um, And there is a a hard R, a hard R N-word in this that I will just say N-word for, Um, but here's the quote. It is related of Bonaparte that he one day rebuked a French lady for busying herself with politics. Sire, replied she, in a country where women are put to death, it is very natural that women should wish to know the reason why. And, dear sisters, in a country where women are degraded and brutalized, and where their exposed persons bleed under the lash, where they are sold in the shambles of N-word brokers, robbed of their hard-earned earnings, torn from their husbands, and forcibly plundered of their virtue and their offspring, surely in such a country it is very natural that women should wish to know the reason why, especially when these outrages of blood and nameless horror are practiced in violation of the principles of our Constitution." We do not then and cannot concede the position that because this is a political subject, women ought to fold their hands in idleness and close their eyes and ears to the horrible things that are practiced in our land. The denial of our duty to act is a bold denial of our right to act. And if we have no right to act, then may we well be termed the white slaves of the North. Waited. She does address how a lot of white women at this time would conflate their state with the state of slaves, often mm-hmm. not an apt comparison, but more apt for working women, she points out. Um, but this is, she explains why the, why be calling themselves white slaves was becoming so popularized. And she doesn't excuse or condemn it necessarily. She mostly just says, this is what happened. Yeah. But I just thought that was such a powerful quote.
0: Oh, it's, Yeah. It's it's an incredibly powerful quote. And one of the things that I was just perpetually reminded of um, in this reading is in every revolutionary history that I have read about, women were always on the front lines. Mm-hmm. And that is only something that I have learned after I graduated college. Like, that's something I have only learned in my extracurricular research is that in every struggle for human rights, women have, like, women have been the motiva- the motivating force.
1: Remember when we learned about what was her name in the mine wars? Uh, Mother, Mother Jones. Yep. Same hat, same feeling.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. You know what else we never learned about in college that this book addresses? Mm. Actual slave riots and revolts, like on any level. Yeah. Yeah, you always hear about the stories of escaping slaves, but the, she tells stories of like actual communities of people that, not just yeah. the Underground Railroad, although she does give an amazing account, account of all of Harriet Tubman's like massive accomplishments, but she describes at one point there was a fort in Florida that was occupied by 300 escaped slaves who fought for 10 days with the U.S. Army to remain free. And it's just, even though it did not end well, I just think that those kinds of stories are something we never really hear in a traditional education environment because any kind of rebellion or revolt is a taboo, even when it's for a just cause. It's, Maybe it's just Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah no, um, the only one you hear about, the only like violence, quote unquote, you hear about is John Brown. mm and I wonder if there's some reason, uh, that people might talk about John Brown, um, in this instance and not, uh, like enslaved persons who rebelled. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's some, some factor that I'm, hmm.
1: God, what could it be, Colin rubbing his face? Hmm. <laughs> 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 so yeah,
0: that's, that's really like all I feel even remotely qualified to
1: yeah, that's the thing. A we're lot gone. of, and when it comes to the themes, we addressed the, the first chapters largely about the role of, of the woman and the mother in the black family unit and how it was misattributed. And people were like, oh, feminine ideas in a matriarchal society. <laughs> she was like, first of all, don't. <clears throat> and second of all, that didn't even happen. Um, yeah, egalitarianism yeah. caused by the equal labor. Oh, one thing that we should definitely address, um, and I can only address this on the level of a uh, woman, and I cannot address on the level of race because I am white, but she talks about how rape specifically is used as a tool of uh, for power and control, and how it was seen as almost the ideal of the antebellum period to have like all of these black women in different roles of sexual slavery and obviously horrific and traumatic, but she does talk, what's important in this idea is that it is specifically a power play. It was even documented by the slave owners as specifically a power play to ensure that these women who were feeling empowered by their communities and empowered in the equality they experienced in the social sphere at home felt small. And I just think it's really important to remember that rape and sexual assault are specifically a gendered crime and ah
0: um she she uh she talks also about about vietnam and about how Mm -hmm. the u.s army uh indirectly encouraged gis uh to sexually assault vietnamese women uh specifically because the people's liberation front got a great deal of support from women um and an example that i learned about uh some time ago, was that the uh, during the Russian Revolution, the White Army would engage in a village-wide or even town-wide mass raping uh, as a uh, punishment, quote-unquote, for daring to be captured by one of the White Army's enemies.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, but here's the thing. This kind of reading this and understanding this history and the many layers of this history is so important. And I'm just really glad that Maybe we're a little bit out of our depth, but I am happy that we're taking the plunge.
0: Yeah, <laughs> thank thank you for encouraging uh, en- encouraging me to read this, Al. Because I, it was something I was planning to read in my free time, uh, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm glad I'm reading it now.
1: Mm-hmm. Even if most of our conversation is going to be saying, I don't have the place to speak on this. I think even reviewing the themes is important. I don't know. Thank you for reading it with me. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. I want to skip ahead to chapter two.
1: We've already been in chapter two a little bit, haven't we? A little bit, but I mean. Oh, you, I mean, yeah, let's do more. I'm happy.
0: Because we, yeah, we haven't really uh, touched a lot. We've touched pretty thoroughly on, on uh, chapter one, but we haven't fully dived into chapter two yet.
1: Heck Yeah. Uh, there's a you want to go first?
0: Go for it, please.
1: Well, I was just gonna. Uncle, the chapter two begins with Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is also sort of how she ends chapter one. Uncle Tom's Cabin, obviously written by Harriet Beecher Stowe, which, if I remember correctly, White Woman, a white woman, I believe. Let me Google this Beecher Stowe, yeah, white woman. Um, who wrote, uh, if you haven't read Uncle Tom's Cabin a story about a enslaved family that inspired a lot of people to join the abolition movement. Uh, And Davis points out that her black mother figure is essentially a white woman in blackface and a stereotyped mold of the perfect mother and wife, demure, soft, only motivated by love for her children. And she points out the hypocrisy of the way that the character Eliza escapes from her slave owners In that she she has this great quote where she says, well, the gist of it is um, that Harriet Beecher Stowe completely strips this female character of any negative feelings towards the institution of slavery or any passion to escape, like, for herself and for her rights. And so, yeah, she basically says, so this book was sexist and racist, but it did inspire a lot of people to join the abolition movement. <laughs>
0: um, it, it's, it's interesting, too. Uh, there's a there's a quote here in 1833. Many of these middle class women had probably begun to realize that something had gone terribly awry in their lives. As housewives in the new era of industrial capitalism, they had lost their economic importance in the home and their social status as women had suffered a, a corresponding deterioration. In the process, however, they had acquired leisure time, which enabled them to become social reformers, active organizers of the abolitionist campaign.
1: I remember reading that.
0: That's, yeah. Uh, it <laughs> This section is awesome. One of the things that I, I noticed is it, uh is Davis talks a lot about basically right-wing mobs. Mm -hmm. And she talks about uh, Lucretia Mott, who was an abolitionist who stood down a full uh, mob of pro-slavery militants. And
1: Mm -hmm.
0: I think this is a parallel that can be drawn really uh, pretty accurately to current events. Conservatives do this really fun thing uh, where mob violence is less the exception and more the rule mm-hmm. um, and far right ideologies being as inherently violent as they are. Uh, these far right mobs, you know, they indiscriminately attack anything that they perceive as threatening to their ideology.
1: Mm hmm.
0: And so, especially in border states between the North and South, you would see raids by essentially pro-slavery ghouls who would ride into towns just north of the border, break windows, burn buildings down, randomly assault people Um, in much the same way. And of course, these attacks were much worse than anything we've seen uh, in recent history uh, because for for lots of reasons, Um, (laughs) but it it follows the same playbook of go into somewhere where you are not wanted, uh, like cause problems on purpose. And when other people attempt to kick you out of that place, hurt them.
1: Start a fight. Yeah.
0: That is, that has been sort of the conservative playbook for as long as there have been conservatives. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating to see that the tactics used by the far right do not change.
1: Speaking of, I got gotcha or someone tried to gotcha me in Union Square. What the fuck does that even mean? You know those guys that will, I don't think he was holding a camera phone, I, I couldn't tell, uh, those people that will like go in public and say, oh, who voted for Biden? Who voted for Biden? Raise your hand. Or like, can anyone tell me that they're a liberal? Is anyone here proud to be a liberal? Oh, no. This guy was yelling, can anyone honestly say they were proud to vote for Biden? And I was like, oh, I know he's just trying to start a fight. Oh, I know he's going to do an argument, but I want to see what happens. So I raised my hand and this man immediately threw out the one fact he memorized, the whole Biden supporting segregation back in the 30s thing for the listener base. The 30s? <laughs> Yeah, for the list. Joe
0: Biden is uh, 200 years old. Sorry, go for it. Yeah,
1: sorry, the 50s or whatever the fuck It is a true fact. I do know. that. Oh, I know.
0: I know. I'm not proud
1: of Joe Biden as a person, like on a personal level. Am I proud I didn't vote for Trump? Yes. Um, I I cannot
0: say that I proudly voted for. Did I vote for Biden? Sure. Can I say I did so proudly? No. Yeah. Anyway. I
1: mean, so, yes, technically, I was lying when I raised my hand, but I mostly just wanted to see what he was going to do. So I raised my hand. He he sees the hand. He goes, oh, really? Well, Biden voted to support segregation in the 50s. You fucking racist, fucking liberal, fucking F slur. He called me an F slur, but he screamed all this as he was like making his way towards me like a heat seeking missile. And I just turned my raised hand into a middle finger and descended into the subway. Cause he wasn't going to chase me into the subway. I hoped, but it was so freaking funny because the second I, he got a he got a hook, he got a bite on his line. My man's went for the, went for the cursing went for the instigating. And I think he wanted to start a fight.
0: <laughs> I mean, Andy, no, did this thing. Mm. Uh, where he would embed with groups of Proud Boys, mm. and wait until the Proud Boys started attacking people, and then start filming, and be like self defense, like um, yeah, it yeah. Oh, Jesus Christ. But you have just an example
1: of that in real life? Go ahead.
0: (laughs) Oh, I realized when I uh, made it, Al, um, you're a lot better at organizing than me, uh, organizing this podcast, because when I looked through the chapter, I realized, holy shit, we have touched a lot on chapter two, actually. (laughs) And uh, it was more of Al being way more competent at organizing this podcast uh, rhetorically uh, than me not fucking understanding where things were in the chapter.
1: I rambled a lot today. I kind of just got very excited and switched between ideas. So don't blame yourself. And don't compliment me. My head is so big.
0: It ends, uh, chapter two ends on the the sisters, the Grimke sisters,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which you brought up earlier. But they also, okay, uh, the euphemism for slavery that uh, is passed around a lot. And this I did learn in in uh high school but it just really rubbed me the wrong way reading this because i was like damn uh, we have always done this haven't yeah. we we have always had cute little nicknames for fucking awful awful things but like the peculiar institution
1: i know uh,
0: so again we always have done this but yeah i mm-hmm. talked uh, talked about the grimkey sisters
1: if you want, I have uh, a quote that talks that where I got the phrase the dialectical character of the relationship between the two causes. Because the Grimke sisters oh wait no, I'm just gonna do this whole paragraph real quick. The question of equality for women, as Eleanor Flexner put it, was not a matter of abstract justice for the Grimkeys, but of enabling women to join in an urgent task. Since the abolition of slavery was the most pressing political necessity of the times, they urged women to join in that struggle with the understanding that their own oppression was nurtured and perpetuated by the continued existence of the slave system. Because the Grimke sisters had such a profound consciousness of the inseparability of the fight for Black liberation and the fight for women's liberation, they were never caught in the ideological snare of insisting that one struggle was absolutely more important than the other. They recognized the dialectical character of the relationship between the two causes. She's just so well-spoken. Mm.
0: I would say as far as um, rhetoric is concerned, like, like the way she writes, she's easily in the top like three or four people that we have read.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: on this podcast big bigly
1: I would also put Mariam Kaba who we only read a little bit of so far in that category and you know what's funny those are the two black women we've read Colin mm-hmm. <laughs> let's read more black women <laughs> I'm just giving you a hard time
0: valid um, valid criticism uh, I'm very
1: excited to finish reading this
0: <laughs> I think that's it as far as what we yeah, have I think it's speak.
1: a good place to end
0: yeah. Uh, anything to plug out?
1: Oh, you know me. Um, plug in the pluggables. You can find me on Instagram at al.gros or if I ever update my website on alisongruby.com. Um, my partner Drew's band is doing a lot of shows in New York these this month. So he check wrote out our theme at, song
0: and it's pretty sick.
1: Yeah. He wrote our theme song. Check out at Bummer the Band on Instagram. What about you, Colin?
0: Uh, You can find me wherever. You can find this podcast at gettinginformedpod at gmail.com and you can subtweet us your hate mail at pod on Twitter.
1: Thank you for listening.
0: Be well. (laughs) Yeah! (laughs)